today on Graceful Truth. We're returning to the book of Titus. It's there that we get the qualifications for leadership within the church and what those qualifications look like, what the leaders of the church should look like. Join us for Graceful Truth with our Bible teacher and pastor, Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. through the want ads and you'll find a variety of jobs offered. Along with those offered jobs are the qualifications for the position they're looking to fill, correct? And you've got to have those certain qualifications to get the job. Well, the same is true in the church. Only from God's Word is where you'll find the description of those who are to properly lead the church. That's precisely what we're doing here in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. That's where we catch up with Steve Converse on today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. Last week we looked at what is an elder, and we basically concluded that he is a spiritually mature man, knowledgeable in the scriptures, officially recognized by the local church, exercising oversight and shepherding God's flock. And we looked at different terms in the New Testament that are used in our Bibles for elder, one being elder, overseer, pastor, leader, even is is used in that context. And we talked all about that. And if you're interested in that, you can get the tape from last week. But the second question we ask ourselves is, what do elders do? What's the role of an elder? What do they do? Well, elders should work together to exercise oversight and shepherd God's flock in a given local church. And so the first thing that we looked at in in detail, and this is just an overview, review, uh, elders should shepherd God's flock. And so you see up there on the screen, they should know the scriptures, they should exhort sound doctrine, they should devote themselves to preaching, teaching, they should care for the flock, they should pray for the spiritually weak, they should disciple younger men, they should gently exhort and encourage one another. And then the second thing we said that elders should give oversight to the flock. Not just shepherd, but oversight. And so what does that involve? That involves everything from guarding the flock from error to determining church policies and and, uh, making decisions about the needs and the direction of the church, working to resolve conflicts and so forth. And it's important to understand here that the elders do not necessarily do all the work that needs to be done. That's not the role of an elder. And that's not the role of a pastor either. Paul wrote this letter to Titus, and it reads, First Um, the first chapter beginning in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders into every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent for or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to what is trustworthy, to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders' overall character should reflect their spiritual maturity. And we, we basically ended and we said we can group these qualifications under three headings. Maturity in the home, maturity in personal character, and maturity in sound doctrine. That brings us to today. That was all review. 
If you're new with this, sorry, but we kind of review every week because sometimes people miss the message and they're not always faithful to go onto the website where all the messages are and, um, you know, listen to it if they miss a Sunday. So we want to make sure that you're up to speed as we teach through a book of the Bible. But today we want to look at this blueprint, continuing this blueprint for church leadership. And we're looking at God's order for his church. And today we want to look at the qualifications of elders. And once again, we're talking about character issues. I read an illustration by Dwight Eisenhower. He, He wrote this in his book, At Ease, Stories I'd Tell to My Friends. And he says early on in his career, he had an encounter with an officer in under his command who basically was cheating at cards. He was cheating. And when he called the man in to his office, before the man came in, he had gotten some of his cards and laid them out on this table. And the man came in and he asked the officer, do you see these cards on the table? Eisenhower did. And the officer said, yeah. And he said, are they yours? And the officer said, "Uh, no, 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 they're not mine. And Eisenhower said, well, would you like me to show you exactly where you have marked these cards? Because I can't. Would you like me to do that for you? And the officer stood there, kind of hung his head down and said, no, no, that's fine. To end it, Eisenhower asked him this. Would you rather resign at once for the good of the service? Or would you like to be tried in the court-martial? And the officer looked down and went again and said, you know, I'll submit my resignation this afternoon. After a couple days, a congressman from this officer's district came in, accompanied by the officer's father, made an appointment with Eisenhower, came into his office, and the congressman introduced the, this, this man's father, this officer who was cheating, his father, as one of his most important constituents and suggested that somehow Eisenhower withdraw this, his son's resignation and transfer him to another camp. Just let it go. And Eisenhower says, I, de- I decline politely. This would be passing the problem on to another commander. And the man would repeat the same offense. And in his book he writes, after the congressman or- argued and blustered a bit, he asked whether I could have taken out of his resignation the words, for the good of the service. <laughs> Eisenhower replied, not as far as I'm concerned. The man had been guilty of cheating, and he had to take his request to the War Department. See, General Eisenhower knew that leadership requires some form of character. It's very true. If a man cheats at cards, if he's not trustworthy, then he's not qualified to lead other men in the combat. That was his point. I mean... Can you imagine if something like that happened today in our armed forces? No doubt the person that made that kind of a call, the Eisenhower of today who was willing to stand up against someone, would would probably be um, brought up on charges. (laughs) They wouldn't fly. Because the common view today, thank you, Mr. President, (laughs) the common view today is what we do in private should not affect our character. It has nothing to do with our performance as a leader. 
And see, as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul said that he left Titus in Crete to correct some what? Some problems. They had some issues there in this little struggling church. And one of the primary prescriptions to get these churches on solid ground was to appoint godly leaders. That was thing number one on Paul's list to Titus. And when you look around the globe, you look around the United States and you see churches struggling here and there, Inevitably, an unhealthy church is unhealthy because it has unhealthy leadership. And so, we have to understand that Christ runs his church through a plurality, a plurality of spiritually mature men, not women, men, that's what the Bible says, called elders or overseers. And these men are called to shepherd his flock. These men are not elected by some popular contest. Okay, rather they're officially recognized by the church congregation and the current eldership by virtue of their meeting the qualifications that are given in two places. First Timothy 3, 1 to 7, and Titus, our text before us today, chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. And that's important to understand for the health of a church, that we understand these qualifications, that we don't compromise on these kind of qualifications. Now, you might say, well, why are there two lists? The two lists are very similar to some degree, but they're not identical. Um, They're not even meant to be exhaustive in any way. Okay, it's just meant to be a guideline. And it talks about character issues. In both lists, the one thing that both lists have in common, that both lists begin with, the man needs to be above reproach in his home life. And so there's a lot of different character uh, prescriptions that we can look at in the Word of God concerning Christians and even women. They should dress modestly, all these things. Okay, but here we're talking specifically about those who are called to be an elder in a local church. They're talking about spiritual maturity in different areas. Spiritual maturity in the home, spiritual maturity in their personal character, and spiritual maturity in sound doctrine. And so the first point here, okay, under our text this morning is an elder must, what's the first thing they must do? They must reflect spiritual maturity in his home life. There must be spiritual maturity in his home life. And this goes under the the heading of being above reproach. It's used in verse 6. It's also used in verse 7. And it basically sums up a man's home. Home, home life, the way he lives, and then it also sums up his personal character. And either one of those, he should be above reproach. After doing some study, I found out the Greek word in Titus is different from the, the word over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. But basically, it means the same thing. It means that there is nothing in a man's life for which a charge or accusation could be brought against him. He's a man of integrity. He doesn't live one way in the church when he's here on Sunday and then another way when he's at work or at home. His wife and children would affirm that he displays the fruit of the Spirit at home. If he sins, he's quick to confess those sins and ask forgiveness. See, under this great requirement of being above reproach, Paul specifies two areas in which it's mandated. 
The first one is an elder must be a one-woman man. A one-woman man. He says the husband of one wife. You say, well, is that opposed to having many wives? I mean, I got one wife. That's, that's hard enough. You know, I can't imagine having more than one wife. Good night. No, he's not talking about that. Okay. There's a lot of different interpretations that go into this. But remember, there's only one true interpretation, many applications of any scripture. And some, even in the early church, the church fathers interpreted it to mean that if, if a man's wife died, um, he could never remarry. Because you only have one wife. Well, that's not what it means. Um, and that kind of, you know, is just wrong. Others said that, that a man who has ever been divorced cannot be an elder. Maybe when he was younger, before he even became a Christian, something happened in his young marriage and, and there was a divorce. And then after years they came to Christ and, and now he's a, a mature man and he's married. And, and some churches would say, nope, he still can't be an elder. That disqualifies you. I think Paul here is focusing on a man's present spiritual maturity. Okay, he's not focusing on the sins that he may have committed years ago. And that's very clear from just the context. I mean, you know, what if a man used to be self-willed before he was a Christian? Or what if a man was quick-tempered before he was a Christian? And now he becomes a Christian. Does that disqualify him? Like these other things? No, it doesn't. What if he used to be an alcoholic before he became a Christian and he got saved and the Lord delivered him from alcoholism and now he wanted to be an elder? Do we look back and say, well, you were once addicted to wine. No, you can't, you can't serve as an elder. No, that, that's not what it's saying. I mean, if that were the case, you know, nobody would qualify as an elder. So do these past evidences of spiritual maturity prohibit a person, a man, from ever becoming an elder? And my answer would be no. Okay, Paul is more concerned with the present godly character than past immature behavior. The term there, literally, a one-woman man, that's what it means. And it, it has to do with a person's character. That he's devoted to his wife and his wife alone. He's not a, what we would call today in, in our modern vernacular, a womanizer. His thought life is under control, under the control of God's spirit. So that he's not enslaved to lust. He's not enslaved to pornography. An elder should be a man who has a track record of being above reproach in mental and moral purity. This means that a man who has never been divorced and maybe has been married for the, to the same wife for 50 years, he may be disqualified from being an elder because maybe he can't get his thought life under control or maybe he's not a one-woman man. Maybe he's always flirting with other women, making his, his wife feel insecure. So I don't think that it's necessarily focused on that. I think it's focused on our present time character. There's been a lot of men who has gone through the horrible experience of divorce. And God hates divorce. Let's just say it. That's what he says about it. But it's a very real experience. And I think when people go through that, we have to understand that, you know what? God forgives that just like he forgives anything else. And so we, we have to be careful sometimes. 
Especially when, when, it, when it happens before the person ever even comes to Christ. We have to be careful. Now, I will say this. If, if that causes them not to be above reproach in their community, or if that causes them, whatever, if they have a history of doing things that causes them not to be above reproach, whatever it might be, then maybe they're not called to be an elder. But I think the requirement does not bar a single man from being an elder as long as he is morally pure, including his thought life. So that's the first thing. An elder must be a one-woman man. Secondly, an elder must have children who are under control. Now this gets a little controversial. A lot of people believe different things about this verse. Because he says, husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to this charge of debauchery or insubordination. Does that Greek word mean believing or faithful? Different translations translate it differently. Does it refer to children who are still under the father's roof? Or does it also apply to adult children? Somebody that I highly respect, John MacArthur, argues that even if one of a man's children, whether he's at home as, an, as a child or out on their own as an adult, if they're not a believer, that disqualifies that man from being an elder or even a pastor. If that would be the case, I don't think you would have a lot of pastors who have young children who can't testify to the faith of their, their ch- ch- children. Another individual says it only applies to children in the home, and that word means that the children are faithful and under the father's control. In other words, they're not rebellious. Now, we can't go into a study of all these different views just for time's sake. But my personal view is this. I think the view that all of a man's children, whether they're younger or older, they have to be believers, I think that stretches it too far. And it really puts on the elder the responsibility for his child's genuine conversion, which in my mind is out of their control. There's many godly men who have had children who have rebelled against God in spite of the father's example. Some say, well, Proverbs 22.6 doesn't say you train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he's old, he won't depart from it. And so they argue that if a child goes astray, it must mean that the father or mother messed up somewhere. And they're really misinterpreting that verse. It's not an ironclad promise. I know a lot of wonderful Christian parents who've done everything they can to sacrifice and to raise their children in a way that would be honoring to the Lord, and yet their children turn out in a way that's dishonoring to the Lord. It's not always the case, but there are examples of that. So I think if you train a child properly, he will grow up to follow the Lord. But there's always exceptions. And I think as important as a father's example and training are, ultimately salvation is what? It's a supernatural act of God. We can't save our children. And while he uses godly parents in this process, no action on the part of the most godly father can guarantee the salvation of his own children. And so our our text, I think, requires that we should look carefully at a man's relationship with his children. Does he model godly behavior at home? Is he conscientious to train the child in the ways of the Lord? 
Does he pray? Does he read the Bible to his family? I mean, if so, normally most of all, but maybe not all, of his children will come to believe in Christ and even desire to serve the Lord. If all or most of his children grow up and reject Christ, then there's something wrong in the home. And that would cause someone not to be above reproach. Therefore, he would not qualify as being an elder. But I just think it's a little hard line to say that if you can get all your children to sign on the dotted line, yeah, I'm a believer, well then, that's okay for leadership. Because I've known a lot of parents that claim their children are believers and their, their, their children claim that they're believers and they, they live uh, what would we would consider a godly life for three or four years through high school and then they go to college and they reject everything and they turn into the most reprobate person on the face of the earth because their, their faith wasn't real. So we have to be careful with this. And each situation must be prayerfully considered. And so whether you view or you take Paul's overall point here is clear. An elder must be a godly husband and father. If his home is not in order, don't expand the responsibility of the home over the family of God. And that goes for not just elders, beloved, that goes for anybody in ministry, right? I mean, there's been people over the years who've approached me about, you know, boy, we're really excited about starting this new ministry. You know, will you help us do this and do that? And you look at their family, and it's a wreck. And the ministry might be a great opportunity, but you know what? We have to go to them and say, at this time, we wouldn't advise you to overstretch yourself by starting a new ministry or getting involved. Why don't you spend time nurturing and ministering to your family at home? And once you get things under control there, then we can talk about ministering somewhere else. So a man who's not devoted to his wife and to his children, and his children are unruly and rebellious, should not be put into church leadership. It's just, it's very clear. Well, what's the second thing here? An elder must reflect spiritual maturity in his spiritual character. An elder must reflect spiritual maturity in his character. See, Paul repeats here the summary of qualifications for being an overseer, being above reproach. And then he adds in verse 7, as God's steward. Okay? For an overseer as God's steward. See, an elder or overseer, they're interchangeable terms. Don't ever forget that. But a steward was a household manager who was accountable to the owner for overseeing daily operations. The church is the household of who? God. It's God's household. 1 Timothy 3.15. So the elders or the overseers are to manage it under God's authority. And they must be given account to him which is a, kind of a, a scary thought at times. When you step into the role of an elder or minister in, in a church, you know, you, you're really stepping up to the plate here. You're, really, you're, you're going to be held account for things that you do that, that other people may not be. It's an added responsibility. And as a steward, you have to remember, this isn't our church. It's God's church. It belongs to God. It doesn't belong to any man. He purchased it with the blood of his own son. Elders are just his stewards. They're those who come alongside and and kind of oversee things. 
Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. <laughs>